When you face a seemingly overwhelming situation, how do you respond? You might get angry. You might feel afraid. Or, as we are prone to do, and the Israelites clearly did here, you might complain. Looking for someone to blame. Looking back on how things were with an idealistic point of view. But when we do this, we fail to see what God is doing in the situation. God puts us in impossible situations to remind us that we need Him desperately, that He is the one who saves, not us, that He deserves praise, not us. And so if you're not already there, turn to Exodus chapter 13. What's the main point that I think we should see this morning? It's this. Stop complaining and see God's salvation. Why do I say stop complaining? Well, clearly that's what's going on in verses 10 through 12. But practically, you know, it's all good and well to say that we ought to stop complaining, but but how do we do that? We stop complaining, at least in large part, by remembering what is true. What does this passage lay out for us that is true about God and about their situation that would have helped prevent their complaining if they had thought about these things. First of all, God keeps His promises across generations. Think about the passage that we keep coming back to in Genesis where God said to Abraham, your descendants are going to be servants in a land not their own. I'm going to bring them out with a mighty hand. I'm going to keep this promise to your descendants. I'm going to bring them back to this land that I've promised to you. God fulfills this promise or begins to fulfill this promise by delivering the the Israelites from the Egyptians, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But who is sort of caught in between these two points, anticipating the fulfilling of God's promise, but not getting to see it firsthand? Joseph. Jacob gets buried in the land of Canaan. Joseph does not. Joseph makes his descendants coming after him swear to him a promise that they will bury him in the land of Canaan because he knows God is going to deliver them and they're going to go back there. And so when in verse 19 it says, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And Moses does this. This is linking these promises that God has made and the fulfillment of it and the faith of those who have come before with the experience of those in this circumstance, who are being led by Moses. So the first thing is, God keeps His promises even across generations. This is an important thing for us to remember because it is easy for us to, for example, look back on time periods of revival in our country or to consider the things that God has said way back, for example, to the early church and to think, Maybe not out loud, because we don't want to sound like unbelievers, but at least at some point in our hearts to think, you know what? Maybe God isn't coming back. Maybe God has forgotten. But when we see the faith of Joseph and the faith of Moses linked back to the faith of Abraham, we are reminded God keeps His promises across generations. And so something like a few centuries is no obstacle to God keeping His promise. So don't think it's been 100 years, it's been 200 years, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, 
he's forgotten about us, he's not going to keep his word. Because there was a long stretch here between when God made that promise to Abraham and when the Israelites were being led out of the land and when uh, Joseph's bones are going to be buried in the land of Canaan, but God is still faithful in keeping his promises. Secondly, we need to remember what is true by seeing that God delivers his people with a powerful hand. Look at verse 16. Just before the section that we started with this morning, with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And if, if you wanted to go back even a little bit earlier in the chapter, verse 14, with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then um, verse 8, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. All of these things are a reminder that God brought them out, even the details of chapter 12. So this was not the distant past that they were looking back on and saying, well, yeah, I think God did something for my great-great-grandfather. This was just before this occurrence. Within a few short days, weeks, God had delivered them from the land of Egypt. How quickly they forgot. How quickly we sometimes forget. Not only did God keep His promises across generations, not only did God deliver His people with a powerful hand, but God leads His people even knowing their limitations. Why do I say this? Look at verse 17 of chapter 13. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. So the most direct route for them to take from uh, Egypt to Canaan was along the edge of the Mediterranean straight up into the land. Why didn't God do that? In part because of demonstrations of his power in the wilderness, which we'll see here in a moment, but also in part because of what verse 17 says, which is, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And we say, but there's a lot of them. Why would they be afraid when they see war? It's one thing to say there's a whole group of people, and it's another thing to say here's a whole group of people being attacked by trained soldiers, people with experience of war. What's their natural response going to be in that situation to run away? And you say, well, how can several million people be kept under subjection by just a few? Well, Look at what's happened in our own country. The threat of loss of property, the threat of fines, the threat of all these other sorts of things. Whether or not you agree with the actions our government has taken, it didn't take a whole lot of leverage to persuade people to follow a particular course of action. And so the parallel here would be if, if the Israelites, even if they number several millions, if enough of their families start getting killed by Philistine soldiers, they're going to run back to Egypt. And God doesn't want them to go back to Egypt. And so God is aware of their limitations. He, he leads them knowing their limitations. He leads them not by the way of the Philistines, but He leads them by His visible presence before them. Look at verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud, nor the pillar of fire from before the people. 
Why is this significant? Well, if you go all the way to the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, what do we see the cloud doing there? The cloud fills the tabernacle as a visible sign of God's presence among His people. And it is anticipated here by the fact that God is going before them in a column of cloud, in a column of fire, and He's leading His people, not by the way of the Philistines, but by an indirect route to the place that He's taking them, so that, as we'll see in a moment, He might demonstrate His power. What else is true that we see in this circumstance? We see that God is sovereign in deadly threats. We sort of have the idea that Pharaoh got it into his head all on his own to chase after the Israelites. And there's a degree to which that's true, right? This is Pharaoh's idea. He experiences a wave of regret. He says, who's going to do all this work now that I've let all these people go? And he too is quickly forgetting the devastation that was wrought in the land of Egypt by God's plagues. But there's also an element of God's sovereignty here that we should not neglect to see. Verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is chapter 14 and verse 4. So there's an element of, I don't know if you would call it prophecy because it's something that happens almost immediately, but God says here's how it's going to be and it, it it happens that exactly that way. Verse 5, when the king was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. They said, what have we done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pehiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And this is uh, where God said that they would be according to chapter 14 and verse 1. Notice the contrast between verse 8, the sons of Israel were going out boldly, and verse 10, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened so that they cried out to the Lord. God was not taken by surprise that Pharaoh decides to chase after the Israelites. In fact, it was the fulfillment of God's purpose that Pharaoh would chase after the Israelites, not because God was trying to inflict pain and difficulty upon the Israelites, but so that in one final dramatic display of His power, God would break the power of the Egyptians and show Himself again in who he is to the Israelites and show them that Moses was the appointed leader that they were supposed to follow. And so God is orchestrating and arranging all of these circumstances so that it happens exactly the way that he wants it to go. Uh, There are a number of people who believe that so the Israelites could have gone up this direct route around the Mediterranean Sea, but they do not. They could have gone south of that across uh, where there's the, the, the sort of the fingers of water that come up in the vicinity of the Arabian Peninsula. And they didn't take the most direct route there either. It seems that they turn down and go down to where all of this water meets together. What does that mean? If they're on the, uh, the tip of land, surrounded by water, 
Pharaoh's army moves in and cuts off their only way of escape, what is that an opportunity for God to do? To show that He's God, to show His power, to deliver them faithfully and in an amazing way. So we stop complaining first. The starting point is remembering what's true, and then we have to actually stop complaining. Why do we need to stop complaining? Because so often our complaints are false complaints. And I think that we see that here. Verses 11 and 12, what do they say? Is it because there were no graves in Egypt you took us away to die in the wilderness? That's exactly why Moses took them away into the wilderness, was so that they would die, right? What was happening to them in the land of Egypt? They were being worked to death. Their children were being slaughtered. They were being broken up and divided so they couldn't be with their families. So this was not just a a wonderful life here in the land of Egypt. And then Moses dragged us out in the wilderness to make us miserable and to kill us. But their complaint continues. Why did you deal with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Well, Moses is clearly the leader, but it wasn't just that they decided to leave Egypt all on their own. The the people of Egypt rise up and with Pharaoh push them out of the land at God's direction. So it's not like Moses was solely responsible for them having left the land. And then their complaint continues in verse 12. Didn't we say this to you? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. There is at least in the Scriptures no record that they said anything like that. The closest thing that comes to what they said was back in uh, chapter 5. They were angry at Moses and Aaron. And they said uh, in verse 21, May the Lord look on you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they were upset because Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, say, let my people go. Pharaoh says, you're lazy, I'm going to make you work harder. But that's a rather different statement to say, may God judge you because you've made life hard for us, and to say, well, we would much rather stay here in these amazing conditions and work for the Egyptians because that's the far better choice. That's a complete misrepresentation of their attitude. They, when they were under bondage, recognized that they were under bondage, and they cried out to God and said, deliver us. And then God delivers them by Moses, and now they say, Pharaoh's chasing after us, so uh, it would have been better if we had stayed slaves. Do our complaints to God sometimes follow the same sort of pattern? When we complain, we're not really looking to solve something, right? Right? We're looking for who to blame. The guy they used to do visitation with was uh, a manager for a chemical company for a number of years. And he used to joke that the job of a manager is not necessarily to solve a problem, it's to know who to pin the blame on. Right? That's not good management, and he said that jokingly, but, but that's people's attitude, right? I don't have to fix the problem. If I'm in charge, I just have to know who to make the scapegoat for it so that it doesn't reflect badly on me. That's what the Israelites are doing. Who's the convenient person to blame for why we're in this situation? Moses. Was that right? Was that fair? Was that true? Not really. But he's the most accessible person that they can blame. And in connection with this sort of blame, 
we tend to misremember details of, of what led us to this particular situation. So let's say, for example, that you're in a situation where you feel like, you know what, I've got this bill coming up and I don't have money for that bill. And this is not always the case. Sometimes just things overwhelm us. But sometimes the case is, I don't have money for this because I spent all this money a couple of months ago on this thing that I really wanted to do. A trip, a new appliance, a piece of furniture, uh, whatever it might be. And now I'm here. Well, I'm going to remember that I, I, I'm going to forget that I had anything to do with the reason that I'm right here. And I'm going to blame somebody else for the reason. It, you know, the problem is not that I wanted new hunting gear or a new tractor or a new whatever. The problem is my wife went on a shopping spree and spent 50 bucks last week and that's why we can't pay this bill right now. Or the reason that my children are acting a particular way right here is not because I said we were going to do this and then I forgot about it. I said we we're going to do this and then I forgot about it and now we come to this and, and there's this, this measure of them not really expecting that I'm going to do what I say. Well, the reason is not my actions. The problem is with them. And so, you know, however, whatever scenario you want to come up with, this is what goes through our minds. Who can I blame? And how can I remember the past details in such a way that it puts me in the best light and everybody else around me, they're the issue, they're the problem, they're the reason that things are not the way they should be. And when it boils down to it, that's perhaps a low-grade form of lying against your neighbor, right? Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. The severe form of it is, let's accuse... Um, Nabal, or not Nabal, but let's accuse the fellow with the Naboth, the fellow with the vineyard, so that we can steal his vineyard. Let's accuse him of blasphemy against God. Let's accuse Stephen of blasphemy against God. Let's accuse Jesus himself so we have an excuse to crucify him. That's the severe form of false witness against your neighbor. But it starts with complaining and false accusations and, and sort of the kind of thing that the Israelites are doing here. And, and we love to pick on the Israelites, right? Those Israelites, always complaining, never believing God, until we look at what it is that they're doing and we say, you know what? I do that too. Because of the pride that still lingers in our hearts, we don't want to admit, I was wrong and this is why this thing is going this particular way. Or, I was foolish and this is why I can't fix this problem on my own. We don't want to admit those sorts of things, so we look for someone else to blame, which of course goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam blamed Eve, blamed the serpent, but God held all three of them accountable for their specific sins. I think the, the turning point of this chapter is in verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today... Or some might even say, because you've seen the Egyptians today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Complaint? Don't fear. While you keep silent, God will deliver you. Verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Here's what I want you to do. And so there's this transition from 
complaint to pointing their attention back to God, to God's words. And when God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? It, it catches us off guard because we say, why would God rebuke someone for crying out to him? Well, because the crying out was prompted by unbelief on the part of the Israelites, and Moses is the representative of the people, he's saying, basically, relay this message to the people. Why are you crying out to me? Here's what you're supposed to do instead, right? And so there's this transition from don't cry out in unbelief. And even if we're crying out in unbelief, God, God can work with that, right? Because it's better for us to cry out in unbelief than not to cry out to God at all. But it would be better for that to be a cry of faith. God, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I believe that you have the power to deliver me. That's not really where the Israelites seem to be coming from. They seem to be coming from a position of, let's blame Moses, ultimately let's blame God, and let's complain about our situation. Moses redirects their attention and says, God's the one who can save you. All the things we just looked at about how God's worked. And... So then they come to this truth, which is, see God's salvation. How do we see God's salvation? Like the Israelites, we see God's salvation as we follow His plan, not our schemes. First of all, God requires obedience. In what ways does God require obedience in verse 15? He says, tell the sons of Israel to go forward. So instead of their complaining, he said, I want you to do something. I want you to move forward. Think about that. They're trapped. There's water in front of them, and God says, go forward. When you and I have that happen, when we're driving in the car and the GPS, for example, if I try to go to the Salvation Army in Royal Oak, my GPS says I need to drive diagonally about six blocks of yards through people's houses to get to it, even though I know it's turn here, turn here, turn here. Because there's a glitch in the GPS. But when God says, there's water in front of you, walk forward, it's not an obstacle for God. Right? So God requires obedience. Move forward, stop complaining, move forward. Verse 16, he gives Moses specific instructions. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Think about if you're Moses at this point. The people are angry at you. They're complaining towards you. And God says, all right, you're going to stretch out your staff and part the waters. Did Moses have any ability to do that on his own? No, God was the one that was going to do it through Moses. Moses was God's visible representative performing this miracle. Think about the parallels, though, to what has happened in connection with the plague. So many of them were Aaron or Moses stretching out their hands, stretching out the staff, and God raises frogs and gnats and lice and darkness and all these sorts of things. God accomplishes it through these human means as they obey and do what He has commanded them to do. Think back to Moses' hesitation to obey God before and then come to this circumstance. What does it say he does? Verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. It doesn't say Moses argued with God. It doesn't say Moses came up with reasons why his hand was not strong enough to hold over the sea. You know, like he made excuses earlier on in the book of Exodus. He just does it. But before we get there, let's see what other things God says here. 
he says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. I'll be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. This parallels verse 4, that they may know that I am the Lord. This certainly goes back to the things that we saw in chapter 12 and 13, that God did these things so that the Egyptians would know that He was the Lord. But God did not only demonstrate His presence by the pillar of cloud to guide the people. Look at verses 19 and 20. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. There was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. It's a puzzling verse, right? There's a cloud, there's darkness, there's light. It separates them. We see all these themes picked up from the plagues, right? God makes a distinction between His people and their enemies. God does things for His people that don't happen for the enemies, and God protects His people. So basically, God makes this wall of darkness and cloud that, as best I understand the text, is dark on the side of the Egyptians and light on the side of the Israelites so that they can see what they're doing and the Egyptians can't get near them because they can't get through this barrier that God has established. God moves to deliver His people. Verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand. The Lord sweeps the sea back by a strong east wind and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. The waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is the point at which people looking at this story who deny the supernatural get really uncomfortable. All right, so uh, if, uh, if the wind blows really hard, we've seen rare occasions when something like a tornado has sucked up all the water out of a particular body of water and sort of dumped it over in this other place, and so maybe that's what happened here. That's not what the text says. The text says, God sent the wind, the wind blew, it opened a path for them, and the path was dry ground. Not mucky ground, not swampy ground, not slightly soggy ground, dry ground. Water's a wall on the right and on the left. So we can argue with the text about what it says, or we can take what God recorded through Moses at face value and say, God miraculously delivered his people, which if we've been paying attention up to this point, should not be a surprise to us, right? Because God's done some pretty amazing things already in the book of Exodus. The Israelites start walking through. What did God say would happen? The Egyptian army is going to chase after them. So God moves the clouds so that the Egyptians see the Israelites fleeing, and they start to chase after them. Verse 23, the Egyptians took up the pursuit all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Uh, one of the questions that I sent you was this question of whether Pharaoh or his army or both are the ones who go into the sea. And the short answer is that I don't think the text tells us whether Pharaoh himself went in after the army. But do you know what result is accomplished either way? If Pharaoh goes into the sea with the army and is drowned along with his horsemen, 
or if Pharaoh is watching on the seashore and his whole army gets wiped out by God, either way, God has honored in Pharaoh his army and all of the things that are being accomplished. And God's word is fulfilled. So God does a couple of things to help the Israelites and to interfere with the Egyptians. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. And again, the people who are seeking a naturalistic explanation for this will say, well, of course, it was hard for them to drive chariots with narrow wheels through ground that was just been wet. But what did the verse say before? It was dry ground. So we're not talking about you have a road bike versus a mountain bike and the one tends to get stuck in the mud faster. We're saying God interfered with their ability to drive. He confused their minds. He makes the horses not cooperate, the chariots to swerve. And how do, they, how do we know that this was not just you know, lack of skill on their part? Verse 25, the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. What does that sound like? This is the finger of God. Let them go before the whole land is destroyed. It dawns on the servants of Pharaoh long before Pharaoh himself that God is doing something to accomplish something here and they ought to pay attention and maybe do something else than what Pharaoh has told them to do. But they don't turn back yet. Verse 26, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So they had a change of heart about going into the sea. It seems like they start to turn around, go back into the sea, away from chasing the Israelites, and God closes the water over their heads. Again, while it is certainly possible for a person to drown in a few inches of water. It is not possible for chariots and horsemen to drown in a few inches of water. So this is not crossing a marsh or a swamp or something like that. God breaks the wall, casts it down, and the Egyptians drown. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone in the sea after them. Not even one of them remained, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Why is it repeat this after the fact? For sake of parallelism and pointing out the contrast between what happened with the Israelites and what happened with the Egyptians. I already mentioned that there are parallels between what happens here and God's deliverance of his people by the plagues. There are also, I think, important parallels that we see between this and what we see, for example, with Jesus and his disciples in the book of Mark. I'm going to read for you a few verses from Mark 4. On that day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? 
Certainly some of the details are different between what's going on between the Egyptians chasing the Israelites through the Red Sea and being drowned and the disciples being almost drowned by a storm that arises upon the sea. But what thing is the same? God's the one who's the master of the wind and the sea. God's the one who says when it's time to storm and when it's time for it to be calm. Do you know what else is the same? The disciples expressed unbelief and the Israelites expressed unbelief. What does that tell us about what was going on in this story? The problem was not the complaint that the Israelites made. You dragged us out here to die. It would have been better for us to stay. We told you so. That wasn't really true. What was the real problem that was going on? What was the real thing that needed to happen? They needed to continue to turn away from their unbelief and trust in God. There's a measure of that at the end of Exodus 14. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. What happened in the story in Mark that I alluded to a moment ago? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There is a measure of acknowledgement of God's deity and God's power and this parallel between God through Moses controlling the sea to deliver his people and God in the person of Jesus delivering the disciples from the sea on which they thought they would drown. The same God worked in both situations to demonstrate his power. Now we look at circumstances like this and we tend to say all right well sure God delivers them physically from an immediate physical threat and we don't see an immediate physical threat so that story is kind of disconnected from our daily experience there are two errors that we can fall into with regard to that one is to make it that there is no difference between a physical and a spiritual threat. The other is to make them so far apart that they have no connection with each other. Why do I emphasize that? Because the heart condition of the people is the same. Unbelief. God is the same, demonstrating His power. And the proper response is the same, which is repentance and worship of the one true God. There are parallels, I think, that are important between what we see in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, what happens with Jesus and his disciples, and the themes that we see, for example, in First and Second Thessalonians, where God says he's going to protect his people. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to take care of his people. Paul said it this way, you who are troubled, rest with us, Because there's a day coming when Jesus is going to come and in a demonstration of his mighty power, judge your enemies, be marveled at among all you who believe, and give you rest from all your troubles. But because that day seems far off, you and I are often quick to complain. What did I say earlier was the antidote to our complaints? Going back to what is true about God and about ourselves. God watches over His people. God keeps His promises. God leads us. God does what He says He's going to do. And when we complain 
and we honestly evaluate those complaints, we recognize almost never are our complaints true, justified, fair, or reasonable. Almost always are they a demonstration of sinful unbelief. So what should we do? Stop complaining and look for God's salvation. Follow God's plan laid out in His Word instead of your own plans. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's wrong for us to make plans, but every plan that we make, like it says in the book of James, is to be submitted to the sovereign will of God and guided by the principles that He's laid out in His Word. Because God knows what's going to happen, and God is directing the course of our lives. And so if we think we can just go it on our own and pay no attention to God and have no acknowledgement that He can redirect our steps, that's foolish pride. We ought to have the response of Paul. When we cry out to Him, He hears our prayers. He can deliver us. In what ways does God deliver His people? Hebrews 11 basically gives the two options. God delivers you from the trial, or God delivers you through the trial up to and including death. Sometimes God does great miracles, like when He rolls back the Red Sea. And sometimes God says, no, you're going to keep struggling with that infirmity, that difficulty throughout the entire course of your life. Sometimes God says, yes, I'm going to miraculously heal that person. And sometimes God says, no, your life is done. I'm I'm calling you into account whether that be to be in my presence or to be eternally apart from me. We don't know which of those categories our lives fall into. I mean, we have an idea of it, right? Because there are those of you who have seen God work in amazing ways to address things that have come up in your lives, and there are those of you who continue to face ongoing difficulties that God has not seen fit to take away from you. What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 1.10 He has delivered us and He will yet deliver us. In 2 Timothy 4.18 at the conclusion of his life, Paul says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Think about Paul at the end of his life when he says this. He's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been rejected by his countrymen, he's had all sorts of attempts on his life, his body is broken, his strength is failing, and yet despite all of those sorts of things, as we've looked at in our book on contentment, Paul does not complain to God the way that the Israelites did. Paul says, like Jesus did, I can entrust my soul to a faithful creator who is with me, who is for me, who is at work in my life. I think we ought to do the same. Stop complaining. See God's salvation. Let's pray. Lord, when we're confronted with a passage like this, help us not to try to explain it away. Help us to take what you have said and to let it sink into our hearts and work the change that you want to accomplish in us so that we might be more like Christ, so that we might testify more faithfully of you to others, so that ultimately you might be glorified because that is why you do and arrange and accomplish these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.